verses together. This is a, a psalm of lament. You know, how many know what a lament is? A lament is when you're sad. And, uh, you know, I love the Bible because the Bible is realistic and it portrays every aspect of human emotion. And so, you know, when we come to church, some people are happy. You know, that's true. Life is good. And then there's other people who feel, oh, life is bad. You know, that's true as well. You know, because there's moments where there's difficulties in our life and trial and sadness and loss and pain and sorrow, and we lament. And so it's good to express our lament to God. So we're going to stand and read a lament to God this morning, because I think we've been happy. There's been a lot of happy people singing this morning, but I also know there are people who are lamenting this morning. So let's read it together. Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint, and before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Lord, I thank you that we are going to yet see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, that's a promise. And Lord, even though we may be walking through a veil of tears, this may be a season of of weeping, Lord, I pray that you'll turn every tear into a pool, a spring of blessing. I ask this morning, Lord, that you'd speak powerfully into our lives in those areas that we have allowed doubt and fear and apprehension and disappointment and disillusionment, you would quell those things from our soul. I pray that they would be replaced by uh, confidence and hope and joy and faith and strength. And I pray today that as we leave this place, Lord, we will have made a new, fresh altar before you, a place where we have laid our lives down. We have allowed you to have authority in our lives, and we've surrendered our fears, and we've, uh, you know, we're truly uh, yielded to you to allow you to work in the coming days in and through our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn this morning to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, Luke 19, 28. I'm just going to stay this week on the theme from this this Sunday to next Sunday. You know, it's pretty hard to deviate from uh, what we would call the church calendar. We're in Palm Sunday. And uh, I find it fascinating that this week's message is going to actually echo what I shared last Sunday when I talked about finding hope in life's challenging moments. You know, how, how, how do we respond uh, when, when we have an expectation that doesn't become realized? You know, lately I've had a lot of those moments, you know, where I had an expectation and then it's been underwhelming. Anybody have those moments where you've expected something and then, wow, that's not what I expected at all. It was just underwhelming moments. And you know, a lot of times when, when, when we're doing the right things and then maybe disaster comes or a tragedy comes, and you know, maybe because of the line of work that I'm in, you know, I, I deal with the great moments in life and I deal with also the very sad and painful and difficult moments in people's lives. So I'm around tragedy and difficulty. And I can see it, you know, in people's eyes and in their hearts. You know, dreams and goals become shattered. You know, vision is broken. People can uh, soon feel like, you know, what's the purpose? What's the use? I've done my best. This isn't working out. There's despair. There's doubt. Eventually, there's disillusionment in people's eyes. And I think that the enemy uses those things to take a poke at us, to diminish our confidence in God. You know... 
I think the word that the enemy wants to use is just give up. No, just pack it in, right? But I want you to say to you this morning, it's never over till it's over. And one of the things you're going to notice as we look at the story, we're going to, we're going to go this week from a high moment to a low moment to an even higher moment. Isn't that an amazing story? That's the, that's the gospel. You know, we have suffering before we have glory. We have the crucifixion of Jesus before we have the resurrection of Jesus. And we see that in the story here this morning in Luke's gospel. One of the most moving moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's now coming into the city of Jerusalem for the very last time. He's coming in as a conquering king. He's coming in to declare that he is their Messiah. And the people are responding and they're waving palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna, which means save now. And and they feel like this is the moment that has been promised from the Old Testament. God's kingdom has finally come and and God is going to defeat the enemy of their souls. Very powerful. You know, little did the disciples realize that in this week they were going to go from such a high to such a low, to an even higher high. You know, they didn't have no idea that was about to happen. And that's the same that's true in our lives. You know, we have tragedy, sorrow, difficulty hits us, and, and uh, we question, we wonder, we, we question God's goodness, we'll question God's love for us. And I don't think we're ever really prepared for tragedy. Isn't that true? Because tragedy just comes out of nowhere. We're just moving along through life, and all of a sudden, tragedy strikes. And it takes us off guard. So how do we handle, basically, the tragic moments in our lives? I think that what we need to see at that moment is it's a time of testing. We just have to arm our mind. We're we're being confronted with a test. And especially when we see no answer, no, no hope, no future, just darkness. And we wonder in our minds, is God done with me? And to the disciples, they were, were, they were challenged in this. And they, they were losing sight of, of God, really. They were losing sight of God's promises, God's future for their lives. And I, I'm sure they were questioning even God's love. So let's take a look at this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which is really a powerful declaration that he is the Christ. The word Christ and Messiah, those are interchangeable words, okay? So he's the Messiah. He's the the promised king. He's letting the people know in no uncertain terms who he really is. It's a a powerful announcement. It's a fulfillment of, of a number of prophecies, particularly in Zechariah, where he says he will come riding on a colt, bringing salvation and justice. Now, usually uh, in the Old Testament, kings actually rode on colts to be coronated kings. You know, it was only conquerors that came in on a horse. You know, they were conquering a people. But this, the, the king never came as a conqueror. He came, you know, riding on a colt. That was true even of Solomon, king, you know, all of these kings in the Old Testament. So, Christ... Uh, Basically, his coronation was, was not to be on a throne, but rather to be on a cross. That, that's just foreign to our thinking, right? Because when we, when we think of a king, we think of a throne. But when we think of Christ, his throne is actually a cross. And his crown would be thorns rather than made of precious metals and stones. A totally different kind of king. Unlike anything we'd ever thought or could even imagine. So, the psalmist reminds us, and I've been reading a lot of these psalms lately, in Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Though sorrow endures for a night. Now, when we think of a night, we just think of one day. But really, what they're saying is, sorrow can last, and it seems like night, for a long time, right? Sorrow can go along for a ways, but then eventually joy comes in the morning. There's going to become light at the end of the darkness in our lives. It's not going to remain darkness forever. And a lot of us, we lose sight of it, especially when we're in the darkness, because it, 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 you know, it, it wears us down. It takes up a lot of energy. You know, Trial, difficulty, tragedy, sorrow, those, those things are you know, extremely emotional, and they're draining us, and we just feel like there's nothing left. And we come to the end of ourselves. And I wonder sometimes if God allows those experiences, I think he does, 
to bring us to the end of ourselves. Because the hardest person to deal with is ourselves. And we're going to find that out today, that God is really reaching to do something powerful inside of our lives. And so let's take a look at this Palm Sunday story. And I want to look basically at two questions that really demand an answer. And the first one is, how are we going to respond to Christ's claim on our life? First question, I think that this story brings up. So where, I'm going to ask the question, where is Jesus in your life? Is he the king? Do we really understand what it means to be, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to move away from a word that we use a lot, a servant, because, you know, servants still have this idea that they're serving, but they still have rights. You know what I mean? I'm a servant, I'm still getting paid. But if I'm a slave, I've lost all my rights. How many know that's true? A slave is different than a servant. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about his life, he described himself not as a servant of Christ. He describes himself. Actually, that's a translation decision, by the way. They use the word servant. Most of the time you read in your Bibles the word servant should be really translated slave. And I think the people in the first century understood that concept deeply because the vast majority of people living in the first century were not servants. They were slaves. So, are you, you know, Paul calls himself a doulos, really which means a bondservant, a love slave. He's serving Christ out of love, but he's really a slave. He, you know, he's, he's given up the authority and the right in his life to decide what his future is all about. And I'm convinced that that's probably the great core issue in most of our lives. We might see ourselves as Christ's servants, but very few of us in this room see ourselves as Christ's slave, which means that I've given up the authority to decide what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm totally given my life over to God, and I'm going to do whatever he's asking me to do. So, you know, it's fascinating to me when we get to Palm Sunday, because if you'll notice the story If you go back up to chapter 19, verse 11, I believe that these stories are in a context. And Luke gives us the context. Before we get to the Palm Sunday story, we have the parable of the ten minas. And in the story of the ten minas, we have there, uh, they were listening to a parable. And because he was near Jerusalem, verse 11, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was to appear at once. So Jesus knows that they have this expectation that the Messiah is going to come and you know, overthrow the Romans and set up the earthly kingdom, that, the, that, that that's going to happen right now. So Jesus now prepares them with a parable. He says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, and he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, Jesus uses this parable, but actually it's a story that actually happened because King Herod actually went and appealed to Rome in order to become the king. And so he's telling a story they all knew. And they didn't really want him to be the king, but now Jesus uses this parable to say, I'm the king, I'm going to leave, and there's a lot of you that don't want me to be the king. Isn't that interesting? So he's actually kind of trying to prepare their minds for what is about to happen. How many know we only hear what we want to hear? Have you ever talked to somebody and you're talking to them and you're saying something and you realize later they never heard me? Anybody have that experience? As a matter of fact, when they respond back to you, you know they didn't hear you, and they only heard what they wanted to hear. Anybody, can you, can you guys understand that? And I wonder sometimes in our lives that like God is trying to talk to us, but we're only, we have a filter on, and we're only hearing what we want to hear. You know, there's a big difference between actually hearing somebody and what they're actually saying and actually filtering out what we don't want to hear. We have filters on. These people had filters on. They just could not get what he was about to do. They couldn't get what he was saying. So then Jesus goes on and and tells the parable. He said the one, you know, that he gave 10 to earn 10 more. And he said, well done, you know, you've been trustworthy in a small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second said, sir, your miner has earned five more. And he said, well done. And then the second, the last one said, I was afraid of you. I went and buried my miner. And of course, Uh, you take out what you did not reap and you reap what you don't sow. And his master replied, I'm going to judge you by your own words. 
You wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I was a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take this mine away from him and give it to the man who has ten. Well, he says, he's already got ten. Yeah, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. As for the one who has nothing, what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now this this is a pretty intense word, isn't that true? Those people that refused my leadership, I'm going to reject. That's what he's basically saying. And then it says in the next verse, after Jesus had said this, he went up. To Jerusalem. So we have to get the context of the story. See, Luke is preparing us for the story and telling us Jesus had told them, I'm not bringing my kingdom in at this moment. But people only heard what they wanted to hear. They did, this did not register. They didn't get it. So Palm Sunday is really an invitation to embrace Christ as king. And there's going to be some people that do that. There's going to be some people that don't do that. And we're going to see that. In verse 28, it says, of 29, it says, As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. You know, I could just sit down and say, Okay, a number of things that are very fast. Number one, how did Jesus know this? How did he know this? He wasn't out scouting the territory. Jesus knows everything, number one. Number two, he said this was a brand new colt that had never been ridden. This is, this is an interesting experience. I mean, you know, how many know when you get on an animal that's never had that experience, you're going to get some interesting responses? You know, isn't that true? But how many know if Jesus, who's the creator of every human being and every creature, he's able to control the responses of this creature? That's interesting. Then it says here, so the first thing that we, we see in the 21st century, because, you know, we can read the story in the first century. Well, that's a nice story. But how does that apply to us in the 21st century? Does that have any bearing on our lives? Well, the question is, what response are we going to give Jesus in our lives? And I think we have to choose, because this is a psalm that really reflects, are we going to worship him or not? So we're, we have to, first of all, acknowledge his rightful place in our lives. And some in the crowd 2,000 year, years ago, they criticized what was going on. And eventually some in the crowd that was maybe singing praises one week were screaming, crucify him the next week. So they were changing their opinion within a week. Uh, so I would just wrote down, for many, the adoration was really superficial, it was based on an earthly expectation. They, they were excited because they thought Rome's gone, you know. But when Jesus didn't do that and he was crucified, you know, or he wasn't doing what they anticipated him to do, then they were upset with him. Isn't that, isn't that true about people? When people don't do what we want them to do, a lot of times we're upset with them. Isn't that true? Sure it is. Hey, how come you're not doing that? Then we get upset, you know. So basically... What I'm trying to say is we have to be careful that we're not superficial. That's number one point. We should not be superficial. There needs to be a depth happening in our lives. How can I know if my relationship uh, is superficial and lacks substance? I, I wrote down three things. Number one, when circumstances have a greater impact on my attitude than the Word of God. Isn't that true? You know, I don't know about you, but life has many disappointments. How many say that's true, Pastor? There's lots of disappointments. You know, I think initially we can feel it emotionally, but then we got to say, we got to talk to our soul and say, hey, is my life defined by what is happening in my life or is it defined by my relationship with Christ? That's the first thing I got to decide. Okay, number two, when I'm more concerned about what others think than standing alone in support of the truth. You know, I think a lot of times we allow peer pressure to define our lives. We're more concerned about the culture than we are about the Christ. We feel the pressure. I'm going to share a verse that really hit me with impact this morning. 
And you're going to see why Jesus was hated. And I have an understanding why people hate Christians. You think it's because, you know, I get tired of people saying, well, Christians are hypocrites or Christians are this or they're not that or whatever. Do you know, you're going to find out why people hate Christians. I'm going to give you the verse today. You're going to see it. Then you're going to have to sit down and decide, am I a true Christian? Okay? Number three, when we discover that we really are not pouring out our lives for other people. See, I think there's, a, there's, there's kind of like, I, I can tell when people move from immaturity to maturity. Immature people, the focus is on themselves. It's about them. A mature person eventually knows who they are, understands their identity in Christ, is, you know, not threatened by people around them because they're secure. A lot of people are doing a lot of bad things because they're just insecure. How many go, that's true? Insecurity drives a lot of people to do wrong things. Isn't that true? So we have to address that in our souls. We need to become secure people. And our security is not based on what I can achieve, what I can do. It's based on who I am in Christ. And I'm secure in my relationship with him. And that's the end of it. That ends it. And then eventually I start, my focal point, the center point of my soul is not myself. The center point of my soul is that I'm serving Christ. Now, I love something. I was listening to Charles Price the other day. He says a lot of Christians think that they're, they're, ser- they're, you know, they're, they're living for Christ rather than allowing Christ to live through them. Big difference. We need to learn to let Christ rule and reign in our hearts and allow his life to flow out of us. It should come from the inside out. So, you know, how we treat other people is a measure of our true relationship to God. So, you know, some, some people are telling me, you know, God's in the center of my life, and then I look at their life and go, no, he's not. And this is why. And John says it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Isn't that true? If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In other words, how hard is your heart? Is there a tenderness, a compassion towards people? That says a lot about, you know, where we're really coming from as a Christian. What we discover in the passage at hand is that the followers of Jesus responded to him in worship. You know, let's read down here a little bit further. It says... uh, as he got to there, they, they got the colt. When he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples, verse 37, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're worshiping Christ. They didn't like that. But you know, worship is a very comprehensive term. And I need to maybe unpack it a little bit because as Warren Worsby points out, worship is the response of all that man is to all that God is and does. So it literally transcends what's happening right now. You know, when we're singing, that's good. That's praise. That's awesome. That's part of worship. That's a a very intense, beautiful aspect of worship when we're singing. Right now you're worshiping. You go, how am I worshiping? I'm listening to the word of God. Or earlier when you gave... That's worship. Because really our giving is actually an expression of our adoration to God. And basically when you think about it, money, think about what money is. Money is just time. I put so much time in to gain so much, right? And so what I'm actually doing is giving back more of my time to the things of God. That's all part of worship. All of these things are worship. The way I relate to my wife and my children or my grandchildren, that's part of worship. The way I I serve people at my place of employment, that's worship. All of that is worship. So if I only, you know, if I behave like a Christian on Sunday, but I don't on Monday through Saturday, therefore I'm, you know, what would you say about a person like that? You'd say, well, they're not worshipers. They're inconsistent. That's immaturity. That's a wrong understanding of what true worship is. Worship extends to every aspect of my life, and I need to know that. See, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 32, they they were sent ahead, and they found things just as Jesus said. How many know it kind of takes faith to just do what God tells us to do? Jesus, I want you to go do that. Well, yeah, well, 
Why did they do that? Because they believed in Jesus. Why did they do that? Because Jesus had been faithful in the past. Why did they do that? Because they knew that what Jesus said he did. They just trusted him, and so they went and did it. Worship is expressed by their willingness to trust Jesus with something they had no control over. They couldn't make it happen. So often we want to be in control in our lives. Isn't that true? We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to manage our lives. We're trying to stay in charge. We're trying to stay in control. You know, I'll just say this. When we do that, our life stays small. Okay? How many here would like to have a bigger life than the one you currently have? You want to move beyond yourself. You see, you have to let go. That's a scary thing. How many know to let go really takes a lot of trust? Now, you've probably put your trust in a lot of things. You put your trust in your abilities, your skill, your intelligence, uh, you know, your energy, your time, your work, your people. But all of those things are going to let you down. Even your, you're going to let yourself down. Eventually, you're not going to be strong enough to do what you once did. That's why it's so wise to turn over to God, even at a young age. Even in the beginning of your age, when you're young, when you when you're, can give your whole life to God, it's a very wise thing to say, God, I give you everything I am. I'm going to let you be in full control of my life, and then you can just do what you want to do through me. It's very, very powerful. You know, Jesus said, I, I think this is so fascinating. I was reading this, and it struck me. It says, um, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And Jesus said, the Lord needs it. Now, think about it. The owners of the colt, this colt was owned by a number of people. That just tells me that they probably weren't that wealthy. Everybody had a share in a little colt, right? You know, isn't it amazing? It's usually the poor that give the most. That's always the way it is. They're the most generous. You say, well, that's why they're poor, Pastor. I go, no, that's not the thing. You know, no. It just shows you that they understand and have compassion for the people that are in need around them because they they experience it themselves. That's why they're generous. You know, worship is expressed by their willingness to trust Christ with something they have no control over. Worship is expressed by acts of giving. The giving of ourselves that we have for the sake of Christ, even though it may not be much and it may be difficult for us to do but we give them what we have. You know, I remember once a young pastor and his wife were church planning. This is not myself, but I was I'm a little older than I've done this a few times. And I'm chatting with them, and the young pastor just was, they were going to quit. They were so discouraged. And he said to me, he said, do you think it's wrong for me to challenge the people to respond by giving and serving? What do you think I told them? I said, of course not. I said, think about it. The pastor is not the church. How many say that's true? The church consists of every believer in the church. Is that true? Of course it is. Every one of us shares in the success or failure of the church. As a matter of fact... The thing that really hit me when I was in Bible college, and I'm my fourth year of college, and I'm studying, and I decided, you know, I'm going to figure out, because I get tired of reading all the stuff on what a pastor should or shouldn't do, and all the congregants all have an opinion of what a pastor's job is, by the way. I made a decision, I'm going to study what the Bible said my job is, and then I'm going to obey God by doing my job. You know what I discovered it was? It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. It says the job of the pastor is to equip the, the church people, the members. The, it says to equip the church, equip the saints, so that they do the ministry. Yeah. They're the servants in the church. They're the ones that are going to do the ministry. The pastor is only the trainer, the mentor, the equipper, while the people do the actual work of ministry. They're the ministers. Isn't that interesting? It says, as every member does its part, the body grows. And I thought about this. So if members and the people that are coming to church just sit there and do nothing, what's going to happen to the church? It's going to suffer. It's going to suffer. Isn't that interesting? It's very fascinating. You know, all of us think, well, what can my little part do? That's not the, don't think that way. If everybody does their little part, it's amazing what starts happening. Because you have synergism happening. Some of you wonder, okay, what is, what is it all about? Is church just coming to church on Sundays and you hear a sermon and you go home? 
Can I tell you what's going on here? There are 31 ministries in this church right now. And every day, there are people that are getting saved. Their lives are being ministered to. There's so much going on here. And not only that, a lot of the monies that we take in are going over to other parts of the world. You know, last year our church gave $340,000 to missions. Didn't stay with us. We gave it away. So I'm explaining this to you so you understand what's going on. Now, how many here said, you know, I personally could have built an orphanage. I personally can support orphans. I can personally send people into Cuba or minister into Costa Rica or go into Myanmar or, you know, around the world that were in Morocco right now. How many can say, I could personally, one person do all that? And the answer is, that's ludicrous. But together we can do that. Together every, every week, Kim knows because she's the one in charge of this ministry, people come to this church and ask for fiscal assistance all over our community. Isn't that true, Kim? And, you know, we gave thousands of dollars away last year. And for most of you, this is going to be a shock to you, you have no idea the scope of ministry in this church. And whenever someone that gets employed from our congregation comes to work here inside the staff, you know what the first response out of their mouth is? I had no idea. You'll be shocked how much work goes on here. It's amazing what goes on here. 31 ministries. Somebody's cleaning the building. Somebody's setting up tables. Somebody's cooking the food. Somebody's doing this. Somebody's doing that. And you saw all the volunteers here. Just Charlene alone has 250 volunteers. There are close to 600 volunteers in the church. Who coordinates all their schedule? Who works at training them? I just talked to the children's pastor. She said, Pastor, we're going to do training today. Is that amazing to you? Why am I telling you all of this? Because in your mind sometimes you think, well, I just come on Sunday, sit down, and walk out. You have to think different than that. It's about impacting an entire city with the gospel. It's about impacting a province, a nation, our entire world. And you have to say to yourself, what part am I doing? And I'm not asking you to do everything. I'm just asking you to do your part. While the followers were worshiping, Others were critical, right? The disciples were worshiping and expressing worship and verbal praise and adoration. I think our church does that well. Um, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. It should not surprise us if some people will criticize us for praising God. Jesus was criticized for allowing his disciples to praise him. There's a desire today to silence the people of God. Isn't that true? To make us feel less intelligent or socially incompetent if we profess our faith publicly. How many say that's true? But it's okay today to stand up and publicly you know, speak of my perversity and everyone celebrates it. Okay? But if you tell people you're Christian... You could be in trouble. You know what Jesus said? I, this morning when I was up early and I was praying, this is the verse that I said, you know, I've read this chapter. I've read the Bible a lot. I don't remember this hitting me with such impact. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you. He's not speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the larger Jewish community. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Try telling people what they're doing is wrong and see what kind of response you get. What do you think? Hey, do you know what? I don't even need to say anything. I just need to live good. It makes people look bad. Come on now. And people don't like it. You know why? Because they're coming up short. And you know, you and I act like, oh, this is something. Why, why does the world hate Christ so much? Why does the society hate Christians so much? You know why? Because their deeds are evil. There's darkness in our world. And I'm going to just say this. Our culture is so broken. And humanity, if you think that we're so sophisticated, let me tell you something. You know, read history deeply and start finding out how vicious and malicious people can be to one another. The kind of abuses and and gross, inhumane behavior humanity can do to each other. It is shocking. 
Thank God there's a moral restraint. I tell you right now, if you took every church and every Christian out of Red Deer, within a year, this city would be the worst place on the planet. What do you think of that? It's the truth. You see, light is what's dispelling darkness. Salt is what's keeping things from deteriorating even faster. So let me point out to us, don't be surprised if you're becoming more like Jesus. Not everyone's going to be happy with you. Let me move on to the second question. This is the only two questions. How will Christ respond to us? How does Jesus respond to my life and your life? How did he respond to the worship and then the criticism on that particular day of celebration? There's no question he loves worship. He's also concerned about the human condition. Jesus saw the criticism for what it really was. These people were envy, envious. They, that's why they, they had Jesus crucified. They, the, the religious leaders saw the popularity of the people following Jesus. They said, we've got to get rid of this guy because the world is going after him. Everybody's following him. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the day of their God-given visitation. Probably one of the most painfully sad verses in the entire New Testament, verse 41 and 42. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. What a tragedy. Jerusalem means city of peace. Who is Jesus? The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace comes to the city of peace and what happens is they don't recognize him. Actually, God was visiting the city because Jesus is actually God in the flesh. The one who they said they were worshiping was actually with them and they didn't recognize him. And he's weeping over it. And you know why he's weeping? Because, you know what, remember I said earlier he could see the colt that was needed? Now we can see the city and what's about to happen. Because when you flip over about 35 years later, that city is going to be totally destroyed by the Romans. And if you come to Rome, we're going to go on a trip here, Lord willing, in in 2019. We're going to go to Italy and Israel. We'll get to Rome. Think about this. When you get to Rome, there's the Ark of Triumph there. There's Titus's triumphal Ark. And you'll see all of the things that were taken from the temple, the menorah, and all the things of the defeat and the raising of the city of Jerusalem. And when you're in Jerusalem, you can actually see it. They've dug it up. You can see where the rocks and everything was from the Temple Mount was thrown down onto the street. You can, they've actually excavated it, and you can actually see it. It's really amazing. Think about this. The city's totally destroyed. How many here have... I'm, I'm sure most of you haven't probably done this, but I know at least one person besides myself have have read Josephus' account, a Jewish historian. Actually, he was participating in this. He switched sides. He was kind of a traitor, right? Josephus writes about the destruction of Jerusalem. How many have read about it? Anybody? I'm going to tell you something. It is the saddest reading. It's terrible. The Jews are fighting amongst themselves. They're starving to death in the city. The Romans have the city besieged. Eventually, they totally destroy the city. Jesus can see what is about to happen and he's weeping because all of that could have been spared if they had only accepted him. Can I just say this? Jesus weeps when you and I reject his offer of love because he knows that what's going to happen if we perpetuate sin in our lives, the consequence is always pain and destruction and death in our lives. He can see the outcome. He's weeping over the city. So how did Jesus, you know, basically he, you know, he, when we reject grace, we're left with the ultimate consequence of our own sinfulness, which is actually judgment. We will be judged for what we're doing. You know, the leaders were more concerned. This is so sad. It was just big business. The temple was one of the great architectural features of the ancient world, And these Jewish leaders were just raking in the money. It says, they devour widows' houses and and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. You know the most fearful thing in the world is? If you're a a civic leader, you're going to stand before God and answer to how you rule the country. But I'll tell you one thing. If you're a leader like in the role I'm in as a pastor, I'm going to be judged the most severe. The words that I share... And then my behavior and how I related and treated people. 
That is the most challenging job. Because if you're not truly Christ's slave, and you're violating and taking advantage of people, and unfortunately, some religious leaders do that, they will be judged extremely severely on the day of judgment. And by the way, we're all going to stand before God. So I keep reminding myself, I'm going to look into the eyes of Jesus. You know, I don't want to do something stupid. Jesus, you know, he says they love the place of honor at banquets at the most important seats in the synagogue. They were basically doing it for what they could get out of it. That's what Jesus was telling us. So how did Jesus answer? He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, these guys that are worshiping me, even the stones will cry out. Jesus' response not only supported the activity of the expression of praise, but he was alluding to what was about to occur and that the rocks would speak out in testimony against him. He's speaking about the destruction of the city. Finally, Jesus comes to the temple in Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. It says, Then he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling. As it is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is so fascinating he saw the temple area, the physical temple area. He actually cleansed it. But I think when we look at the story, we need to be able to apply it to our lives. Now, we could say, well, he could do that in a local church. He could come in and say, hey, you know, this is where you guys need to make changes. But, you know, that really is not going to affect most of us in this room very deeply. So I'm going to make a different application. You see, I'm not saying this is the interpretation, but I'm going to make an application. What's the application, Pastor? Well, it's simply this. What does Paul tell us about our bodies? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask ourselves a question, what's going on inside of us? Does Jesus need to come and do house cleaning inside of my life and inside of your life? Because Jesus really wants intimacy and communion with us. He longs for unobstructed relationship with us. Isn't that true? He wants the barriers in our relationship with him to be removed. That's called sin. When you and I have a right relationship with God, it's really an amazing thing that happens. Our hearts change. We become tender-hearted. We become open, moldable. God can shape our lives. God can start working powerfully in and through our lives. But when you and I, you know, you know, become unteachable, when we become hardened, we're like Pharaoh. God's trying to get through to us, but every time... God, God spoke through Moses. It says, Pharaoh, what? He hardened his heart, didn't he? And he was bringing judgment on his nation. He was bringing judgment on himself. And you know, so many people in our culture today, when God speaks into their life, it's either one of two responses. Either we're tenderhearted and we're responsive to God, or we just harden our heart and we close our ears and we don't want to hear it, and we refuse to be instructed. And the Bible says in Proverbs that, you know, that's, we're just literally wise in our own eyes, and we were actually in a terrible condition before God. Jesus desires our lives to be a place where there's communion with God, that we have a relationship with Him, that we can talk to Him. He's concerned about our relationship. You know, God is desiring to fellowship with us. He wants us to have a friendship with him. He wants us to be like Abraham. You know what it said about Abraham? He was a friend of God. You know what it said about Moses? He talked to God face to face. Not amazing statements. Well, this was the action that Jesus did here on this week that tipped the scales. This is what sent the religious leaders in a frenzy to get rid of Christ. When this event exploded with him, you know, coming into the city, people praising him as the king, accepting him as the Messiah, he goes in and cleanses the temple, that ends it. And now within six days, Jesus is going to be crucified. Less than that, five days. Amazing, huh? Pow, just like that. This was a triggering event. You know, sometimes in our lives there are triggering events that God utilizes to speak into our lives. I want to just close with a story about where God's heart really is in all of this. Henry Nouwen was sharing, and he's written a book called The Wounded Heal, and I was reading an incident in his life, and he said, I remember a student whose father was never able to express affection toward him. This young man had become, decided to become a minister, and he came to school, and I was one of his teachers, and even though others think I'm a good teacher, even he said to me, I never enjoy anything you're saying. 
How many like to have that response after class, you know? (laughs) This is my job. I'm a teacher, but I don't enjoy it. He said, I tried to be interesting, but he couldn't hear an adult male tell him anything because it reminded him of his abusive relationship with his father. One evening when he was feeling sick, I was kind of biking in that area where he lived, and I suddenly realized I decided I'd drop in. And I, I said to him, came to the door, I said, hey, I've been thinking about you. Are you feeling any better? And the young man was so stunned to see me. He said, you came to see me? You thought of me? And I touched him and I put my hand on his hand and I said, yes, I really care about you and I really love you and I meant it. And I felt that. Sometimes, you know, God can give us that emotion when you're telling somebody that, you know. And this is later he told me that after I had left, he cried for two hours. He had never heard an adult male say, I love you. And he added, that taught me all I needed and wanted to learn. Do you know when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem that day, 2,000 years ago, his coming was to say to them, I love you. And most of them didn't hear it. And you know when Jesus comes into our lives, he wants to say the same thing, I love you. But we need to hear it. And we need to respond to it. And we need to realize that what he has in mind for your life and for my life is far better than anything you and I could ever come up with or dream. Isn't that true? Think about it. The creator who fashioned you in your mother's womb, designed you, has a purpose for your life. It's the truth. I can prove that to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And then he's the one that calls us out of darkness. He's the one that opens our heart to him. He's the one that has prepared good works for us to do in advance. He's the one that does all that. But what he really needs today is our lives, is our heart, actually, where we surrender our lives to him and say, Lord, you know what? I want to live for you and not for me. Big difference. And the moment you make that amazing decision, you'll be living in a way you've never lived before. It'll be far better. You'll be far happier. You'll have greater joy. I believe that. You'll have greater peace. You won't live with so much anxiety, so much fear. You won't be in control anymore. God will be in control. You know, I said this a few times this past week because I felt people needed to hear it. You know what I said to them? I said, listen to this. I don't know what our, what, I, I, don't, I cannot control my tomorrow. But I know who controls my tomorrow. You see? I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know who holds my tomorrow. What a way to live. If you and I would put and say, Lord, I surrender to you. I'm going to have you stand right now. You know, I've been thinking about this, you know, this, this message. You know, we can... <clears throat> I just feel like, you know, this morning, some of you, God has been speaking into your soul. And I'm going to just say this. Even though you're a believer, we're not talking about your in deep sin and all the rest. I'm not talking about that. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about a very subtle thing, but it's a very significant thing. Where you can honestly say, you know what, Pastor? I need to admit to myself that I am really... The reason why I'm so wound and hung up and anxious and fearful and all the rest of that stuff is because I'm in charge. Yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I've given my heart to Him. But you know what? Is He really in control? That's a bigger issue. And I'm going to challenge you to make a decision I made, you know, 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. And I just said, you know what, Lord? I'm going to give my life to you as a slave. I'm just going to give up and surrender completely to you and let you do what you want. It changed my life. And for some of you, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to just come forward, lay your life down and say, okay, God, I'm just going to trust you. Give everything up to you. I'm looking to you and you alone. 
I want you to come right now, quickly. Just come where you are. God's speaking to your heart. You know, let him have the authority in your life. Let him be at the center of your being. Just come this morning, really quickly. We've got two minutes. I'm going to let you go. I want to be on time. You know what? You're going to just say, okay, I'm just going to release all my fears, all my anxieties this morning. I'm going to let him have my future. I'm going to let him have everything about my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to give it to him right now. And you know what's going to happen? You're giving God authority in your life. You're surrendering to him. He wants that intimacy in your life. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to live in fear any longer. Say, okay, God, here it is. You wanted it, you got it. I'm just giving it all to you. Whatever you want, that's good for me. And I'm going to, you know, I tell you, God's game plan is so much greater than your game plan. I'll tell you that right now. I've been praying in my own life. I'm just saying, God, I want to have a greater impact in our nation. I want to have a greater impact in the perversity that I see travailing. But I don't want to criticize. I don't believe criticizing it is going to change people who don't know the truth. I really believe somehow we need to, you know, demonstrate Christ's love to them and somehow show love and light and hope in such a way that people that are so broken will realize, I am so fed up of my sin. I'm so entrapped by my sin. I want to be out. I want to be free. I want God. When you you pray these kind of prayers, God goes, okay, I'll take you to another level. You know? And the enemy's going to come after you. And I go, so what? He's been after me for 42 years. What's the difference? You know? I I just want to make a greater nuisance to the devil and be more used of God than I ever have before. But to do that, I have to lay down every agenda I have and just say, God, your will be done. You will be done. So, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters today who just realized deep in their soul this is a fresh moment of consecration. And that's good. We need to do this over and over again. I've done it many times where I've come back and said, Lord, here is my heart, my life. I give you my fears. I give you my doubts. I give you my abilities that you've created within me. I give you my life. I don't want to be in charge of it. I want you to be in charge. Just direct my steps. Show me your way. Not my way, your way. Help me to see your purposes done in and through me. And Lord, may these days ahead be the greatest days of my earthly life. May these be the greatest days of my earthly life, Father. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.